Okay, right here. Bam. <clears throat> okay. okay. All right, so today, just so you know, I mean, basically, I just threw this um, PowerPoint together. I mean, this is the next slide, and this is all we have. I don't have any notes. We're just going to have a little fireside chat. Okay, going into next week, we're going to look specifically, I wanted to have a whole um, session on the psychology of atheism. And we're going to, you'll see this interspersed when we talk about the others. But we are going to take a flyby overview, you know, look at these three leading into next week. And then we will start looking at, you know, uh, God in the Bible, you know, the existence of God through this perspective in the Bible. So, remember uh, last week when we had finally uh, proven the existence of God, and then, uh, and, and I had uh, finished that by saying, you know, a lot of philosophers, I mean, a lot of Christians kind of, they, they don't like the idea, you know, they, they basically say that we're using Greek philosophers, you know, pagan Greek phil uh, philosophies in order to prove the existence of God. And so they, they categorically reject that because, again, remember, uh, I also mentioned how Paul had said to beware of vain philosophies. And I mentioned, you know, the, the, re the response to that would be basically you can't beware of any philosophy unless you're first aware of of. Of philosophy and ultimately like it or not the New Testament was written in Greek God gave us the New Testament in Greek so we have that language forever now that doesn't mean we thereby necessarily use the Greek philosopher and just category and just assume all of their uh, assumptions because we are going to see the similarities between basically Aristotle's concept of God in our concept of God, and then we're going to look into the differences where this is becomes completely different. Okay, so first, this the similarities. Okay, in the Bible, the Bible. Remember, we we mentioned general revelation and special revelation, right? General re revelation is that that revelation that God gives through nature. You know, and he implants the uh, morality in our hearts. You know, he gives us a conscience and all that kind of a thing. It's a general revelation. Special revelation is the Bible, right? And so the Bible doesn't go out of its way to prove the existence of God other than a handful of uh, times we see in Psalms, we see in Paul a little bit. But ultimately, it doesn't go into it all that much. It kind of assumes the existence of God, where in the first page of the scripture says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't say, you know, hey, just so you know, before all this, let me let me give you the categorical imperatives why God must exist and how he must be a self-existent eternal being and all that. It just goes on to, here's God, who's already assumed. And so what we're doing in apologetics is using the Greek philosophical um, analysis to prove God's existence and then working from there. And just because, you know, God blessed this, these pagan Greek philosophers to at least this knowledge doesn't vitiate this truth, okay? So, the similarities in the Bible, it does speak of God being eternal, self-existent, the creator of all things, and basically that's where Aristotle says, yay and amen, and then we stop there. Now we're going to the differences. 
the the philosophers at that time remember we had met, we had talked about logos and their concept of logos and they saw that logos is basically the this this self-existent eternal thing is basically an abstract and and completely separate from all of creation and we'll get into deism uh, m many of the early uh, founders of america weren't christians they were deists which basically looks like they basically say God is, God is the great watchmaker in, in, this, in heaven. You know, basically he makes this watch very intricately, you know, puts all the different parts together, winds it up, and then lets it go and takes off and just sits back, you know, and watches. You know, and basically that's kind of where uh, Aristotle's philosophy ends. Where we see, remember, in John, in the beginning was the word, that's logos, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now we are seeing this, this, this Logos as a person, okay? Now, even in Aristotle's philosophy of personality, you know, you have what's called, he said, intention. You know, when, when you, the, one of the chief characteristics of personality is in what we call now intentionality, okay? No matter what you do, you might be wrong at what you're doing, but you have intention, okay? This, is, this doesn't exist with trees. You know, this doesn't exist with, you know, uh, inanimate objects. This only exists in personality, okay? And so you can't have unintentional intentionality. We talked about the teleological argument a little bit, you know, to prove God's existence. And that's where you see design out there. You look into the universe, you look into the world, you see design, and that screams for a designer. And not just a designer, but it has to be an intelligent designer. He has to know, just like, similar to the watchmaker, he doesn't just, you know, intend to do this and just hope it works. He knows, he intends, and he knows. He's omniscient, and he also has to have the power to do this, omnipotent. And we're going to return to that, but that is where the person of God emerges from the Greek philosophies, okay? Now we are entering the pages of Scripture. Does that make sense? Okay. Because another thing, one of, uh, two of the, biggest skeptics um, of, of really the proof, the classical synthesis that we had mentioned with uh, uh, um, Aquinas, uh, really was David Hume and Immanuel Kant. Remember, they, they had criticized that classical uh, synthesis. But even, even Immanuel Kant said he couldn't get past the starry hosts above and the moral law within. So the way I, we're going to move to Kant's moral argument, the way I would like to think of uh, Kant, insofar as the existence of God, and either seeing the existence of God or just real quickly, it's basically he's, he kind of rudely <laughs> ushers God out of the front door, and then he kind of sneaks him back <laughs> into the back door. That's a good way of putting it, because remember, he had, he had criticized that classical synthesis, but remember in, that, in his first book, The Critique of Pure Reason, and then later he writes The uh, Critique of Practical Reason, and in that, he basically says we ought to live as, there, as though there is a law. I mean, that's where, I mean, uh, there is a God, because that's where, like Dostoevsky said, you know, if there is no God, all things are permissible, right? And so he's saying 
Now, real quickly, because I had mentioned we, so I really wanted to go into this too, because we had mentioned Khan and we're still not going to speak much about him until we see him again. But I wanted to show you, I wanted to kind of use him here for both reasons, for dual reasons. One, his epistemology, which I, which I had mentioned, is what's known as transcendental. People, he referred to as transcendental. What, what that means is he's transcending the problem. He doesn't, he doesn't, because he, he was ag agnostic as far as being able to prove the existence of God. Remember, you've got the noumenal world and you've got the phenomenal world, right? But then he says in practical, but what he, his epistemology does is now, Basically, it's transcendental insofar as it goes beyond the problem. And so the morality, the, the moral argument is basically, if morality, if there is such a thing as morality, he's not saying, I can prove the existence of morality. It's just, you know, you, you, you see of all of civilization and basically everybody has a conscience. Everybody has a certain moral law written on their hearts, right? And what he's saying is, Morality, if morality exists, these are the necessary components, okay? So basically he's saying, what are the necessary components? First of all, we all have to, we all have this sense of oughtness, is what he calls, or, you know, to put it more simply, just this innate understanding between right and wrong, right? So that's one thing, right? And, 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 when we recognize that, we also recognize that there should that there must be some sort of justice, some sort of jurisprudence, some sort of justice to to prevent, you know, evil, uh, to punish evil, to encourage good, and all the rest. But we also recognize in our world many innocent people die in the hands of evil men. Many innocent people are incarcerated. Uh, many guilty men are 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 not found guilty because they the the judge and the prosecution is limited <laughs> to their capacity to know everything right every single thing okay so there must also be an afterlife if this if this absolute if morality exists these are the necessary contingents for it to exist so not only in our world but there must be an afterlife. There must be a judgment in the afterlife. Now, if there is this judgment, then what else is necessary? You have to have a perfectly righteous just judge, one who's incapable of corruption, perfectly just, perfectly righteous, okay? He also has to be omniscient. He has to know all things. He can't be limited in his capacity to not know certain evidence, to not know certain things that had happened that just escapes his, his purview. He, he has to be all-knowing. Now, and then finally, what else is necessary? He has to be omnipotent. He has to have the power to exercise whatever judgment this perfect, omniscient judge judges. Okay, so you have to have, and that's where we get the existence of God, a perfectly, well, according to Kant, okay, a perfectly just, perfectly all-knowing, and perfectly powerful enough to exercise that judgment. Okay, does that make sense? Now, 
Many philosophers reject this. They say they basically say just because you know just because the the alternative to 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 God's being this perfect judge is grim, it doesn't make it real. It doesn't make it necessarily true. And that's a that's a fair argument, but ultimately the ramifications of that if this isn't a thing then we go back to Dostoevsky and basically all things are permissible and that's really where 18th century and 19th century and 20th century atheism and our modern psychology has embraced a pure meaninglessness and freedom is found in freeing us, freeing ourselves from these moral restraints that have been inflicted upon us by this God who doesn't exist. And so that's why the sexual revolution came, because especially Freud, he specifically said his big deal was this liberty, the easiest way and the most influential way this, this can start to happen is through sexual deviation. But to them, it's not deviation, okay? Quickly, though, I also want to make the, the point. These people spent very little time proving God didn't exist. What they're doing is basically saying they're assuming God doesn't exist. And now, therefore, since God doesn't exist, now what? Now what? Now, basically, we're just left to live however we want. However we want. I know I'm missing something. But... Yeah, um, well, I forgot to Anthony Flew's thing up there, but that's fine. So, what they're saying, though, is basically, without God, all is meaningless. And remember, we had talked about, even in Ecclesiastes, where Solomon goes on to vanity of vanities. You know, and he talks about this really in two ways. Under heaven and under the sky, basically, the the heavens above and the sky beneath. You know, we, we sweat, we toil, we work, vanity of vanities, all is vain. And he goes, goes on from there and there and there. So that's where there's some agreement here. Because the difference, though, between the, the vanity, and uh, of course, this isn't talking about, like, c conceit. You know, and we're not talking about people being vain. It's more like a futility. Uh, so um, he agrees at that point. So the, the, the vanity under heaven is basically Kant's noumenal world, okay? If there is no God, then it's meaningless there too. And if, it's, if there is no God, it's meaningless in the phenomenal world as well. What, what uh, Solomon goes on to say is that since we have a God, all these things that we, we, are, we easily see as meaningless, you know, the sun rises and the sun sets, and as Hemingway said, and then the sun rises again. It's just this constant thing, this constant cycle, going nowhere, meaning nothing. That's why Hemingway killed himself. Albert Camus had basically said, the only question now, with this, with this embrace of meaninglessness and vanity, of vanities, and there is no God, the only question left to the philosopher is that of suicide. And Hemingway completely bought into that. And that's why he killed himself. It's what's called nihilism. The nothing. 
the there is nothing and and what which which only produces hedonism what hedonism is basically the freedom the 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 the, the capacity to only do that which pleasures you so you seek the the greatest amount of pleasure and you seek to minimize <laughs> any suffering any sadness or anything so you just maximize the pleasure and minimize the pain kind of a thing okay and so ultimately the only option left is that of suicide um but uh where was i going with that anyway um but so that's where again they're they're encouraging this nihilistic worldview okay i did use this so let's go ahead and do this all right so basically there are two completely different sides of the spectrum okay you've got full body theism and you've got nihilism these are two completely opposite sides of the spectrum okay so we were just discussing that's where we are <laughs> and nietzsche uh, john paul sartre sorry john paul sartre wrote a little novel uh called nausea because what he was mentioning was basically the his 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 conclusion as to um, um, uh, um, mankind, basically humanity, is that uh, it just nauseous. It's not nauseous, you know. It, he calls man a useless passion. You know, man has all these interests, all these all these desires, and and what we'll get into that next week. But the psychology of atheism, what, and that's kind of a spin because what Freud was doing, mostly Freud and a lot of psychologists from him as well was again if there is no god why are why are men and women just incurably religious it's called homo religioso why is man incurably religious and that's what they seek to uh i don't know if it's gonna work let's just try that okay there we go um uh anyway so man is just a useless passion so these people are embracing if there is no God, ultimately there is no meaning. And that is complete nihilism. Okay? Now, there are people who do agree that there is no meaning, like humanists. But they'll say there's, there's, they'll, 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 fight. so like, you know, we'll put them somewhere in there. They'll, so they basically rob from theism to give some sort of value to humanity. These are the people who are, you know, defending third world countries, you know, the, the freedom of man, you know, against slavery, you know, without God, you know, just, just defending the rights of people. But ultimately, if there is no God, there is no inherent value in humanity. They're just robbing from this philosophy, from this worldview, from this perspective, where they are really living here. So they just rob and you will see this over and over and over again. That's why I wanted to talk about this specifically today, going into specifically the psychology of atheism, because again, that's really spinning it around, you know, kind of redirecting the aim back toward Freud, where it should have begun in the first place. But again, these humanists and any other atheistic postulate that, 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 that invokes some sort of meaning, some sort of morality, is baseless. 
they're robbing from here to, to have any foundation at all for any of that. Does that make sense? It's very important to understand. It's very, very important. So again, we'll, we'll go into uh, the psychology of atheism um, next week and really, really look at that insofar as it, how it's uh, translated into our modern time. Any questions on that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think we all, you know, if we love God, obviously, we want to seek to please Him and seek to do, but, you know, we'll never do enough anyway, and um, he, he loves us unconditionally, and that's what really leads to us wanting to serve Him, you know, and so, I mean, there's a degree in which we'll all be, you know, uh, underserving him either way. I mean, even if I were to travel the globe and preach Christ everywhere exhaustively, you know, and, and never get any rest and, you know, die that way, I'll still feel like I did done enough, you know, and ultimately I probably haven't. So, you know, it, it, again, you know, that, 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 that fulfillment of, of even our service to God is found in Christ, you know. And so as much as we seek to serve him because we love him, you know, um, it's 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 not seeking to earn his love. Right. You know, uh, that kind of a thing. Yeah. Okay. Any other any questions? Any other questions? That was a good point, though. All right. Excerpt is fairly small. We're just going to keep keep on kind of going from where we were because I, I, this is a this is a pretty sweet theme. Um, and I think it, uh, it's thought-provoking. And so, again, we're just continuing from last week. Ready? <clears throat> For if there are as many opposing natures as there are, oppo there are opposing wills, there will not be two, but many more. If any man is trying to decide whether he should go to their conventicle or to the theater, the Manichaeans at once cry out, See, here are two natures, one good, drawing this way, another bad, drawing back that way. For how else can you explain this indecision between conflicting wills? But I reply that both impulses are bad, that which draws to them and that which draws back to the theater. But they do not believe that the will which draws to them can be anything but good. Suppose then that one, that one of us should try to decide and through the conflict of his two wills should waver whether he should go to the theater or to our church. Would not those uh, also waver about the answer here? For either they must confess, which they are unwilling to do, that the will that leads to our church is as good as that which carries their own uh, adherence and those captivated by their mysteries, or else they must Im imagine that there are two evil natures and two evil minds in one man, both at war with each other, and then it will not be true what they say, then, uh, that there is one good and another bad. Remember that? Where they're arguing? Yeah. yeah. Uh, else they must uh, be converted to the truth and no longer deny that when anyone uh, deliberates, there is one soul fluctuating between conflicting wills. Again, this is just going into the Manichaeans. Uh, the Manichaeanism was a dualistic philosophy. Um, basically, two natures. You know, you've got the evil nature, you've got the good nature. Essentially, it's like Star Wars, where you've got you know the 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 good 
being, and and then you have the evil being, and they're equally as powerful, and they're just eternally bat- battling back and forth. But but the Manichaeans, uh, and he taught, he writes a critique of uh, of the Manichaeans. But anyway, it's a dualistic philosophy. You got two natures: one evil mind, one good mind. And Augustine is continuing to point out the absurdity of that. You know, if if you're if you're talking about like th- this this will to decide whether you go to church or whether you go to a theater, they'll say this is one good mind <laughs> battling against a bad mind. You got you know you got your angel on this shoulder, you got your devil on this shoulder. That like, silly little thing. And what Augustine is saying is that's absurd. If if you're gonna assume that, then you've got to say that there's an there's a numerous amount of wills then, not just two, because. Within those two decisions or other decisions, you could very well just go nowhere. You know, there are all sorts of decisions. It is the conflict of one mind, remember, under the penalty of sin that was freely done in Adam. Remember that from last week? So it's, it's, it's one mind. It's the conflict of one mind determining and willing it to pass. But it is the one mind under sin that fights against itself. Alright, any questions on that? Alright.